Welcome to the Think for Yourself podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikram Mancharamani. If you haven't subscribed, please do so via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Podbean. And now, over to Dr. Mancharamani. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to this eighth episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. In this episode, I'll be sharing the audio portion of a webinar interview I conducted with Tom Petrie. Tom is one of the most experienced oil industry executives that I've ever met and has more than 40 years of history studying and analyzing the dynamics of the hydrocarbon extraction business. He's literally written one of the most impressive books on the subject. It's called Following Oil, Four Decades of Cycle Testing Experiences and What They Foretell About U.S. Energy Independence. And just to put a little... uh, cherry on top of this cupcake, uh, Tom also happened to have been an advisor to the Saudi Arabian government on their development of natural gas resources. So when oil prices went negative, I could think of no person better able to help me make sense of it than Tom Petrie. Uh, So I'll just play the unedited version of my interview with him now. Thanks, everyone, for taking the time to to log on here to this webinar. Uh, I am absolutely thrilled to have with me today Tom Petrie. Uh, Tom is a living legend when it comes to the dynamics of the oil industry uh, and his uh, his storied career within the oil industry uh, really is unrivaled. Uh, He's been through uh, more cycles in the oil industry and as understands some of the key dynamics as relates to the price of oil and the industry dynamics, uh, probably better than most people do. So I don't think he needs a long introduction, but I will introduce him in a bit. Uh, Before we do that, let me just share with you that this is again, part of the Think for Yourself webinar series, which was really started uh, by me uh, a couple weeks ago to help illustrate the key lesson of my forthcoming book, which is called Think for Yourself. And it's the idea that you should sort of triangulate your own perspectives by tapping into the appropriate experts. And obviously today, there's no better expert when it comes to oil than Tom. So I'm looking forward to hearing his views. Uh, But nonetheless, this is uh, my book that's forthcoming. And then I'm excited to announce that next week, I'll be uh, having a webinar. My webinar next week will be with Kishore Mabubani. Uh, Kishore is uh, the former Singaporean ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, he was at one point president of the UN Security Council. Uh, he's the founding dean of the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore. And he recently penned a book called Has China Won? And given the dynamics at work here uh, in terms of the US-China rivalry, uh, he's a really well-positioned person to comment on what might be happening in terms of grand strategy. And so we'll, we'll hear from him next week. Uh, it's a little bit earlier than normal because he's in Singapore. So apologies, but it'll be 8 a.m. Eastern. Um, and then, of course, the, there's last week's uh, webinar with Lori Robinson, General Robinson's. Uh, web, that, there is a recording available. Uh, you can find it in the email chain that I've been sending out. If not, please reach out. And there's a recording of the, uh, the interview that I had with Dr. Khan about pandemic risk, etc. That's also available. But more importantly, we have Tom Petrie with us today. So again, I don't think he needs a long introduction, but uh, let me just say that he's advised uh, on more than $250 billion of strategic M&A within the oil patch. Uh, He 
you know, built a large firm and sold it, uh, was vice chairman of uh, Bank of America Merrill Lynch, actually Merrill Lynch, then Bank of America Merrill Lynch, um, and today is the founder of Petrian Partners, which does uh, M&A advisory work, uh, again, predominantly in the energy sector. Uh, he is the author of this book, which is literally one of my favorite books when it comes to the uh, cycles and under and understanding, if you want to understand what's happened in the oil patch uh, and the oil industry over the last 40 plus years, uh, this is literally the Bible. Uh, I will just add one little tidbit. Uh, the book is now in its second edition and that's almost sold out, uh, but there is a great way for you to get it in case uh, you want to get it and you can't access a, uh, a physical paper copy. Uh, it's also available as an audio book. Uh, so I listened to it on Audible, as well as having, of course, the uh, book in hand, which I'm thrilled to have. <laughs> so with that said, let me, uh, let me welcome Tom. Uh, like I said, I'm thrilled to have you here, Tom. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Vikram. It's great to be back together from, from our time together in Montana last year. Yeah, I appreciate it. That was great. Uh, so, Tom, I got to start with the obvious question, which is, Oil prices went negative fairly recently here, and not just a little negative. I mean, we're talking 30, 40 bucks negative. Uh, what was going on? What happened? Was this just a paper market versus a physical market? And more importantly, given the diversity of people that are tuning in here, uh, what does it mean? What can we read out of that dynamic? Well, it was only a week ago, a week and a few days. And uh, uh, the Part of the explanation is that storage is filling up, especially in North America, especially in the United States. And that um, there, so there were parties who were, had hedge contracts that uh, in their provisions, in the fine print, they have to be ready to receive the oil physically. And uh, most people who had those contracts who had swimming pools didn't want to put it in their swimming pool. So. <laughs> Uh, so part of the explanation is there was a they went negative in order for people to close out hedges that they had were uh, were receiving uh, those uh, receiving the oil physically uh, was virtually impossible. Uh, but I I do actually feel that then the volatility that we experienced that particular day for, when it first went negative uh, it was. Uh, it was a little bit negative, single digits, uh, four, five, seven dollars, something like that. Um, but then it grew, and it, at one point it was up north of thirty dollars, thirty-five, thirty-six dollars. And I was pointing out to um, one of my partners that uh, we had oil that was hedged at fifty-five dollars uh, down in the Permian Basin. I said, "Why don't you call the the people who did that hedge and say, can we close out that hedge now because?" there's $55 plus the negative, there's an $88 swing right now. Yeah. And, you know, that's enough for us. We, we'll take whatever risk is involved closing that hedge out. And of course you can't. And it turns out um, that uh, there, there was a certain reality to it, but there's also a, 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 an existential threat to the CME if this, if this becomes a new course at the time of regular uh, rollover of contracts from month to month, uh, because the the most noteworthy thing when that was happening, I was on the phone with a uh, uh, with a, uh, a management team uh, of a company of a significant company, and they were saying, "Look at Brent. Brent is not jumping around like a Mexican jumping bean. It is uh, it's very stable." 
And part of the answer is the, the big preferred hedging opportunity in North America certainly is, is the CME with the WTI contract, the West Texas Intermediate contract. Um, uh, and so far, the prospect of uh, seeing Brent uh, become that volatile is, is pretty low. They do trade together, but um, uh, we haven't seen the threat because there hasn't been quite the same pressure on the, on the storage factor. Um, there are people today, uh, today I, I listening to just some of the regular business shows, several people have said, I don't think it'll ever happen again. I'm not so sure about that. I, I'm not sure about what we could have another uh, occasion or two. I do think the CME is going to try to dampen the risk of, of big negative swings like that because it is, it's distracting. It's, it, it suggests a certain dysfunctionality because, as I said, it, 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 it is not really actionable for those who've been participating looking to have a, a reliability to their hedging positions. So, you know, time will tell. Uh, a month from last Monday it will be the next roll, roughly. And, um, and at that time, we'll have a better answer on this. I think this, we get into some, other, some geopolitics before long here. Um, I think it, this is a good time to say, how do we get from $40 a barrel plus to $36 a barrel minus? And the big single event was the fallout that had been pretty much intact from 2015 up till recently, where Russia and Saudi Arabia were coordinating what they were trying to do to stabilize the price of oil right. and, and put it in a range that they felt was, was consistent with their national interest. Um, and, but the, there was a misread that occurred um, on the part of the Saudis, in my opinion, where they thought they had such a tight relationship with Russia that all they had to do was tell Russia what they thought the game plan would be. Then they had to assure Russia that they could deliver the rest of OPEC uh, to the game plan. And then Russia would rubber stamp it. And of course, Putin didn't rubber stamp it. And when that didn't happen, then there was a, there was a pretty, pretty much an overreaction uh, then by the, uh, the crown prince to uh, say, well, if you're going to increase your production to go for market share, we'll, we'll go you one better and we'll go for market share. And when that was so publicly announced around the world, it was the new shot heard around the world since uh, the first one was in your hometown there in Lexington. And, uh, and so, but, but what clearly happened, I think, I think Russia was thinking $40 oil's too high for now. If we take it down toward 30, that'll probably deliver enough of a message to the industry that they'll accelerate their capital redeployment away from the industry. Um, and that'll be good. I think there's reason to believe, and some things came out that would suggest uh, both the president of Russia and the crown prince ended up in turn shocked that they didn't take it from 40 to 30. They took it through all of the 20s and then ultimately through $20 a barrel and then on down from there. Yeah. And so uh, that's, how, that's how we got there. And I, and I think it's significant that after the falling out, other than Russia backing off with a very modest statement, well, maybe we won't increase production right now. That's about all that's been said. And what has happened with oil? 
10 became 12, 12 became 13, 14, 15, yesterday 17, 18, today 19. Yep. So uh, we're still in a state where it's been a shock to the market. Um, and frankly, the, the price that's paid by both Russia and, and Saudi as tied with the U.S. being the three largest uh, producers of oil in the world is an enormous price. Yep. And if they can do some things that don't take the price up high enough to restore the shale revolution that we'll be talking about. Yep, when I come to that, yep. Um, but, but, but are twice the price that we're seeing today, then the cost of doing what they did to achieve kind of a new world order in oil uh, will be a lot less. So it wouldn't surprise me in the upcoming May, uh, May 10th OPEC meeting that it may not be as overt as sometimes it is, um, but actions may speak louder than words. And I wouldn't be surprised about what various nuanced uh, self-correcting forces kick in. Sure, sure. No, uh, I appreciate that perspective, Tom. So just for everyone that doesn't understand Tom's uh, ability to, to talk to Saudi Arabia and their intentions. Let me share another tidbit of his background. Uh, for, was it four years, Tom? I think for, for roughly four, maybe a little longer years, uh, Tom served as an advisor to the government of Saudi Arabia uh, in terms of thinking about hydrocarbon development and natural gas and some other things. Uh, so uh, this is not just idle commentary like we might get from some folks. This is actually someone who's got real deep perspective. Um, the other thing I forgot to mention at the beginning is, uh, by all means, please continue to submit questions through the Q&A feature. I see some popping up here. Uh, I will turn to those. I have a, you know, we're going to plan on maybe half an hour, maybe a little longer of, of back and forth, me and Tom, and then we'll turn to them. So, Tom, before we move on to the geopolitics, which I do want to get to, tell me when that difference between WTI and Brent emerged to be so large, you saw the negative here, does that say anything about U.S. demand? Does that say anything about the plunging needs in, in sort of domestically or locally? Uh, or is that just a financial market uh, sort of variable? Well, it, uh, you know, the, one, the, oh, when you look over the last uh, six or seven years, uh, the, the ratio or the gap between Brent, which is typically sold at a higher price, and WTI has varied. And there are times in just the last two months when it's been as little as $2 a barrel and as wide as $10 a barrel. So it's an accordion in its own right. And we do get an, a, an opening and closing of that. Uh, but in general, uh, if you take a long view of Brent oil versus uh, West Texas intermediate oil, light sweet oil in, in Texas, um, uh, the, the correlation over long periods of time is, is remarkable. And, uh, and, and it, I don't know that I'd read too much into it. Um, typically, the Brent oil is sold internationally, and it's the main pricing oil for uh, good, uh, good gravity, good quality oil uh, in the Atlantic Basin and even in the Pacific Basin. And then in the U.S., uh, WTI is mainly for the domestic market, although recently, since we a year ago, started really starting to export some of our light sweet oil, mainly because the supply response to the prices we were enjoying uh, several years ago was so good that we 
we essentially filled up the refining capacity in the United States for that light sweet oil. And we had to start exporting. And, uh, and there were other markets in the world where you could load it on a tanker and ship it. Sure. So speaking of tankers, uh, why are we not using tankers as storage? Or are we? Uh, I mean, is there enough of that? I mean, Oh, yeah. You know, that, that's a proven way to do it. It, it. Back in the 1980s, in the middle 80s, 1986, we loaded up tankers all over the world because we had a, we had a real uh, demand shock back then from the high prices. Um, and then and we went into economic decline that caused demand to, to slip. Um, we've had other times in, in various uh, past periods. So it's a well-known technique to do. Uh, it's not the best utilization of a, uh, it's kind of expensive storage in some ways, but in a time when demand is shrinking, it's your, it's your least worst alternative. And you go to your least worst alternative in those kind of times. Um, so back in, uh, after the Thanksgiving surprise of 2014, late that year, uh, when OPEC and Russia surprised the market by saying, we're going for market share, uh, the loading up of tankers did occur then. Then, it, then they, when we started to get economic recovery, uh, after they backed off from that, then we were, then we're back in it. And now we're back into loading tankers because, you know, if you'd asked me a month ago, month and a half ago, well, how much of a demand impact is, is the uh, pandemic going to have? My first cut was eight to 10 million barrels a day of, of decline. Uh, within a week, I began to realize, whoa, I was low, I was low by half. Yeah, I was only had half, it was over 20. And, and really, we probably are close to the peak, maybe, at, maybe beyond the peak now in demand diminishment, but it was over 30 and, and sometimes approaching 35 million barrels a day on a 100 million barrel a day Market. former consumption level. That's yeah. fantastic. You know, we haven't had a, that kind of a move in demand since the Great Depression of the 30s. And back then the whole amount was so much smaller. Sure. It, does, it makes it different to compare it to that. And Tom, do people, or I shouldn't say people, would the US be using this opportunity to fill up strategic petroleum reserves? I mean, should, would other countries be doing, I mean, it seems like a logical time, right? It, it is. We developed a strategic, strategic petroleum reserve, which are uh, basically hollowed out uh, salt caverns in Louisiana onshore, and um, and we can, you know, our nominal capacity is a billion barrels. Uh, it's a nice round number. Uh, we were at 700 million barrels about uh, two weeks ago of fill already. We had drawn it down from being full some years earlier. Now um, we're on the way to being full, and I think practically speaking, we probably won't ever get to the billion barrels. There's there's the difficulty for some who'd like to use it of getting their physical barrels to the right location to put in. There's issues of how you segregate various types of oil, heavy, medium, or light oil in different caverns. So, you know, if we get to 900, a little over 900 million barrels, that may be functional full capacity. Um, there's still something left as by most estimates I've seen recently would suggest there may be another week to 10 days before we're functionally full at Cushing, Oklahoma. Uh, and then there'll be an incentive perhaps to build more tanks in Cushing because it's, it's a, really the uh, ground zero for storage in the US. Gotcha, gotcha. 
let's go back to geopolitics because I know that there's lots of people that are intrigued by that, uh, and so am I. <laughs> so um, you hinted at sort of the the government budgets of both Russia and Saudi having some vulnerability to low prices. Um, maybe you can expound on that. Do you have a sense as to, I realize their cost of production may be low, but their needs for cash are high. Is it conceivable that this, uh, that their needs for cash, specifically as, as this oil price war uh, took on some momentum, Tom, that they were dumping risk assets at the same time? I mean, is there a relationship there? Do you know whether they think like that? Any sense you can provide of that? Yeah, well, in both cases, uh, these countries uh, need to sell oil in the, in the world markets uh, to generate uh, their credits and be able to import uh, manufactured goods and value-added goods uh, to be a competitive uh, 21st century um, country enterprise, if you will. Um, and in both cases, uh, their ability to sell that um, is uh, at, a, at a price that enables them not just to produce the oil and earn a return on, the, on that, uh, but also uh, to fund much of their societal needs and their security needs and, and whatever else they're doing to become more competitive in an interconnected world like we have. Now, we're beginning to fray that notion of uh, an interconnected world, and we're certainly beginning to challenge it by virtue of what's now going on. But they, they in, in both cases, it's very clear that uh, this is one of the best things they can sell on the world market that has been generally needed. We've grown production, uh, you know, in, in recent, the last two decades, production has grown essentially from 70, 75 million barrels a day at the low end on up to that 100 million barrels a day. And, um, and they've been major factors in making sure that the world stayed supplied at, a, at an acceptable price. At these levels, uh, with, a, with the kind of 35% uh, short-term decrement to demand, um, uh, they, you know, they're, they're participating. And, and when, when that uh, shot was heard around the world that, that they were going to go for market share, um, it, it really did, you, you know, you, you can't make it up on volume for their total country needs when, you're, when you've gone from 40 to 10, 12, or even 19 barrels a day, uh, $19 a barrel today. So, uh, you know, I, I do think they're aware of it. There was a statement made by uh, President Putin right after the, the, the split up where he said, we can produce oil profitably at $40 a barrel for the next 10 years. Uh, that's not an untrue statement, but, it's a, but it's, it can be a misleading statement in that he, he didn't say, and we can fund everything we want to do in our country in terms of security and, and growing the economy and so on. And, uh, and I think they, you know, they know that, and that's why uh, having now locked in low expectations broadly in the, in the global marketplace for oil, um, I'm, I'm going to watch with real curiosity the behavior leading up to this next OPEC meeting and the behavior this summer, because uh, I'll be very surprised if they, they may continue to say some of the things they've said recently, but I'm not, say that, I'm not sure they'll be able to say it conv convincingly when you really look behind what's, what's really going on. 
Sure. And, and how much of this do you think is a spat that's Russia-Saudi versus a, let's pretend, let's have some theater here, but it's really drive shale out of the game? Um, you know, I, I do think uh, bending the supply curve for shale in North America was part of the goal. Uh, it was that that was true in in uh, 2014 between the spring of 2014 and the fall of 2014. Uh, there were a series of meetings uh, involving Russia and Saudi on this subject because they were that's when they were losing their market share and then and they finally came up with a plan. They didn't stick with it too long after they announced it. It was about a nine month period. They did bend the curve but they, they came to that same conclusion. It's pretty expensive to bend that curve yeah. because they also found that in a free market economy like the US has in oil, um, a lot of innovation was going on that was lowering the break-even cost of shale during that period. The learning curve was progressing remarkably and I talked about that in my book. Yeah, so Tom, one thing that you talk about in your book uh, while we're on the geopolitics uh, area is this, this this power triangle. And I, you sent me a slide, so I'm going to pull that up, but maybe you can start talking about it and I'll put it up at the same time. Good. Um, yes, you know, the, the Middle East is undergoing some very important changes. And um, it occurred to me that new alliances were developing in the aftermath of 9-11 and in, and in the aftermath uh, as people came to grips with the new Russia, uh, where where uh, in the aftermath of the Russian Revolution, the, the, the modern revolution where the Soviet Union came apart at the seams. So I began to realize, and it came out of that, that period of advising uh, the foreign minister of Saudi Arabia on their gas initiative, that um, there, were, there was a strengthening of ties and, and a, uh, a sharing of economic uh, mindset between Russia, China, and Iran, and between and then ultimately it evolved into other power triangles, not as strong as those, the, that particular one, but more alliances, more dialogue at least between Russia, India, and Iran, between um, Iran, China, and India. So there's overlapping power triangles that posed a, a, new, a new ordering of power, if you will, in that part of the world. And it, it did not go unnoticed in Saudi Arabia. And in fact, this is the way it was as I was describing it in the book. But, but today, uh, what you also see in the play out of what happened in Syria, Russia achieved that long-term goal, a centuries-old goal of Russia was to have a warm water port. In Syria, they have a warm water port. And that's why getting Russia to ever abandon the commitment to Syria is going to be a formidable challenge, to say the least. Um, so you've, but you now see other moves by Putin to be a factor in uh, everything that happens in the Middle East. And, and, and that gives rise to other things that we'll be looking at in, in the coming years, how Russia may play off a good relationship uh, that it has in, on certain points and certain issues with Iran vis-a-vis -vis Saudi and certain relationships with Saudi vis-a-vis -vis Iran. So there's a... The, the, those overlapping power triangles have redefined post 9-11 uh, the order of, of power in the Middle East. And therefore, the goodwill that the U.S. earned with as a stabilizing factor in the 70s, 80s, 
and even 90s um, in the Middle East has been in a way superseded by the emergence of the power triangles I talk about. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a fascinating dynamic, uh, especially when you see how Saudi Arabia, I, I like the way you describe it, they were looking west and now they're looking east. <laughs> uh, exactly. Sort of backyard to front yard, so to say. You can't ignore, you can't ignore. <laughs> yeah, I've, uh, I've enjoyed that description of it. I think it's apt. Um, so how do you see that playing out going forward? Um, especially, Tom, if you think about uh, Saudi Arabia specifically. Uh, you and I have talked about their large defense budget. You and I have talked about some of the other dynamics that take place there. In the context of these shifting fortunes and shifting alliances, are you worried about Saudi Arabia? Do you think that their sort of their leadership is thinking correctly about this? What do you think there? Well, uh, there, there's been an, um, <clears throat> excuse me, there's been an important change in that uh, uh, the, the new king, relatively new king, King Salman, succeeded um, King Abdullah. King Abdullah uh, had worked hard, and the U.S. relationship uh, with Saudi was very deep at that time. Uh, Saudi Arabia and the U.S. have enough of a, a shared set of goals and, uh, and I think, uh, ways of seeing the world that I'm not suggesting it's going to come to an abrupt end. Uh, but I do think it's going to be more challenged. And it's going to be more challenged because President Putin, who had a relatively weak uh, set of cards to play a decade ago, has played them well. And, uh, and that's taking away, it's not making a moral judgment about it. Um, it's making a judgment about how do, you, how do you establish a presence where people respect the power that you're asserting. And uh, Russia having abandoned uh, the big mistake that they made in 1979 was to go into Afghanistan and uh, find themselves really an enemy of, of the Saudis. Uh, the Saudis were strong supporters of Afghanistan. Uh, when I was over there on my first trip during our engagement, uh, the Saudi, uh, the Russian ambassador to Saudi Arabia was coming out of, a, of the office of, of the foreign minister at the time that I was going in to meet him literally. And, uh, and it hit me right between the eyes that that could not have happened a decade earlier. Because until Russia abandoned its military foray into Afghanistan, uh, Saudi was, a, was not just a, a declared enemy, but a, a very real enemy and a major supporter of, of uh, Afghanistan. Today, uh, it's a very different situation. And there are good reasons for the Saudis to look in their national interests to the east and to the northeast, if you will. Um, and one, the presence of Russia uh, involving Syria and involving its relationship with, with uh, the long-term inimical relationship that Saudis had with Iran means you, you've got to have a seat at the table or you've got to have a channel of communication. And two, um, they look further east because now that the U.S. has become relatively self-sufficient, uh, we still import some oil, but we export as much or more oil than we import. So we're essentially uh, energy independent compared to where we were for, the, uh, for all the decades of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and even the first half of the last decade. So it's a different situation uh, there now 
but it's, it's going to be more challenging for decision makers in Washington. And, uh, and that, you know, the book you just mentioned has China won. Uh, that's not, a, one cannot definitively answer that question yet, but it's a great title because you want to read it. And I read the hundred year marathon, which talks to that same theme. And, um, and I want to read this book because uh, it, we're going to have to be much more adroit and not let our domestic politics trump, pun intended, not let our domestic po- politics trump our national, our international interests as we deal with that reshaped Middle East. Sure. Uh, so Tom, we're getting lots of questions here, but I, uh, since it's my webinar, I'm going to ask one more. <laughs> so uh, low oil prices and low energy prices, hydrocarbon prices are likely to cause or spur consolidation and other sort of uh, uh, mergers, acquisitions, and restructuring within the domestic oil and gas industry here in the United States. Relating to that, do you think that LNG or the building of LNG terminals, export terminals, or, or what have you here in the United States, do you think that that is done? So sort of sub bullet point A is consolidation and restructuring of the energy industry here in the United States, oil and gas specifically, and sub bullet point B is implications for the building of LNG uh, facilities. Two, two great questions. Number one, uh, our our system is is amazing. I'm amazed by it, and I lived through it. Um, once we started to see the evidence that the shale revolution was for real, and that we were going to redefine the magnitude of the U.S. presence in both oil and natural gas, our capital markets rewarded early movers who had advantage. There was an Oklahoma land rush, if you will, across the United States in the known basins because we were basically going to the source rock. And instead of waiting for the oil to migrate out of source rock or the gas to migrate out of source rock to optimal reservoirs, we suddenly said, let's let's go develop the source rock. And all we have to make sure is that the energy in is a nice multiple, is a workable economic multiple of the energy out. And typically the shale revolution is built on that. If you have six to 10 times the energy out that you have going in to do the fracking and unlocking it, you've got an economic proposition. Once Wall Street bought into that and they bought into that uh, shortly after the big downturn, the great recession of 08, 09, they started buying in in 11, 12, 13, 14 and they marshaled capital. And we had a big rejuvenation of new companies or existing companies that expanded tremendously. Um, Now, and then the second stage of that was after you funded them with equity, they had, and they had good land positions, they came and got funded on debt. So what do we have? We have $110 billion of, of debt maturities much bigger debt outstanding than that, but debt maturities in the next three to five years are more than $100 billion. And uh, and at $20 a barrel, uh, most of that is gonna be challenged to to make those payments. So either you get into restructuring, uh, and this time around, we had some of that uh, five years ago, right after in 2015 when when the Thanksgiving surprise brought the price of oil down. Uh, This time around, we learned from that, and some of the bondholders 
are much more sophisticated. And they say, we understand, we bought, we bought these bonds, we bought them at par. They're now, in many cases, they're selling uh, at discounts. And, in, and when they start selling at half off, we are really the future owners of some of those companies. And that's, that's a process that'll have to play out. Uh, and it's going to, and, and those who anticipate it and work with, with managements that bring real intellectual capital to bear uh, can, can restart through either voluntary reorganizations or involuntary. And, and we've already seen some of both and we're gonna see more. Yeah. Uh, so that's what that is. On the LNG, LNG is really critical. We, you know, 15 years ago, the notion was, it was clear cut. Every, the long-term forecast has said, hey, it's clear. We found all the gas we can find in, in the US. Um, that was not right, but there was the prevailing wisdom. And, um, and so we're gonna, have, we're gonna become one of the world's biggest importers of gas from gutter in the Middle East, from parts of Asia where there's a lot of gas, from West Africa where there's a lot of gas, and, so, and for, even from Russia where there's a lot of gas. And then as it turned out, um, we started to build out a big infrastructure to, to be able to bring it in and take it from the liquefied form into the back to gaseous and put it in our system. Turns out we were totally wrong. We, we were halfway through building out that infrastructure and all of a sudden it became clear, no, no, the shale revolution started with gas and there was a lot more gas. And so all of a sudden we were creating a gas bubble and we needed to get, and in early stages, we were doing the Barnett Shale down, in, down between Dallas and, and Fort Worth, Texas, and some, some up in Arkansas and then up in Appalachia and so on. Um, and what happened there is we suddenly needed some of the things that, of the infrastructure to build to import gas is the same as to export. You need big tank, you mean big, big docks, deep water ports and tanks. And, but, but then you also need great refrigeration to bring the gas down to a temperature where it can be moved as a liquid. And so we've now built out 10 billion cubic feet a day. We've either built out or in the final, final stages of adding a little bit more where we can export, export 10 billion cubic feet a day. We have a resource base that could export another 10 billion pretty readily. Um, but the other thing that's coming on is for the first time in, in history, gas, LNG gas was always priced when it first started. My first job as an analyst in 1971, one of my first visits was, to, was with Marathon Oil. They were, they were inaugurating with Phillips Petroleum, shipping gas from Alaska, from Kenai, Alaska to Tokyo Bay. And they priced it to the Japanese on its heating value com uh, compared to oil. And once oil went from $3 a barrel to 10, 12, 15, and 20, it was a great business. But, but now what we have is a situation where uh, LNG is needed both to take away surplus gas from the Permian Basin and uh, to meet the needs to clean up uh, the burning. Gas is displacing coal at a rapid pace. And that's in general a good thing relative to uh, carbon emissions uh, because the chemistry of gas is so much better than coal. Uh, so that is going to continue. Uh, but, I think, uh, but I think the pricing of it is going to be 
more challenging than it's ever been in the last 40 years when, uh, when it used to be priced against the oil equivalent. And so now we're going to have burner tip competition for gas in the main consuming parts of the world, in Europe, in, on the coasts, the three coasts of the U.S., the Gulf Coast, the East Coast, and the West Coast, and the various uh, industrialized major markets of, of uh, uh, the Pacific Rim. Gotcha. Good. Well, Tom, we've, uh, I'm drowning in questions trying to get through them here. So let me, uh, let me start turning to some of them, if that's okay, because I think there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of real interest here, including some comments. Uh, obviously, uh, greetings are coming to you from the ambassador in, uh, at the Oriental Republic of Uruguay. Um, I'm not sure I should add the word Oriental, but then he, nonetheless, Ken George sends his greetings. <laughs> so, uh, all right. So there's a question here about industry consolidation in the U.S., any idea who the main consolidators are going to be? Is this a balance sheet strength game? Is this something else? Uh, will there be private equity entering, new participants, uh, existing? There's a couple of things. I'm not, going to get, I'm not going to name specific names, but let me talk about types of companies. Um, you know, the shale revolution uh, in the early stages and even in the intermediate stages was, um, I'm going to use a, a real technical term, was poo-pooed by many of the major companies. And uh, they, they, were, they were understandably skeptical whether it was going to have enough running room to really change the world. Uh, we now know that in, in many respects, it has changed the world. Uh, and it, and, uh, but because of that, entrepreneurial independence really grabbed the, mar the big land positions in the best basins because they could move quicker. Uh, but in this consolidation, there will be opportunities for the major integrated companies, major integrated international companies uh, to at least determine how big a position they want to have in this segment. And so they're, they're natural consolidators. Um, there, are also, there are also a number of independents, uh, some of them among the larger ones that have good balance sheets and are not going to be faced with uh, debt repayments over the next three to five years that they can't make. They, 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 they've been planning for it and they, they have the balance sheet. So it is a balance sheet issue and both of those categories help. Uh, the, the majors, the, the integrated internationals have the added advantage of being able to, by being integrated, uh, they really maybe have more optionality on how they get their, their oil to market in, in the form of uh, valuable uh, final products that can be consumed. So that's an edge that they'll have in that. Um, then, there, then there will be other situations where, and, and they're already showing up, they, they, you know, a, a recent prepackaged bankruptcy here in Colorado uh, was Whiting Petroleum. Sure. And that's, that's a bit of a, uh, of a, uh, a go-by, if you will, uh, for some who are thinking about whether there's a way to work in a negotiated manner with the bondholders and other debt holders uh, to reposition themselves and have the enterprise reemerge where, uh, where the balance sheet has been improved. And that usually means, at least for an interim period, that the bondholders uh, control the company uh, because they become the, the majority stockholders. So this, this next question, I think, builds a little bit on that and I think is a fascinating question, but uh, thoughts on the U.S. wanting to maintain shale and sort of gen generically domestic uh, capability to be able to control our own energy future. 
and what the government might do to accomplish that. So nationalization, public-private partnerships, is, does this become geopolitically important such that economics take a, takes a backseat effectively to the sort of national uh, priority of maintaining independence? I, I, I would be surprised. Uh, I believe this industry is the epitome of, uh, of capitalist ideology. And I mean that in the best sense of the word. Um, uh, and it's been a major source of, uh, of the economic growth over the last decade. Some, some have identified this to be something like 40% of the uh, job growth in the United States uh, from the great since the Great Recession. And I think therefore, uh, you know, the Texas Railroad Commission uh, is, is really debating this now, what role might they play? Because they do have some enabling legislation at the state level where they could, they could step in and help control production levels. I don't think they're gonna do that. Uh, they've, been, they, they've shown reticence to fully embrace the arguments that were made. Um, uh, I might be wrong, they might change their mind. They're, they're, they, they deferred the decision uh, till next week. So let's see what they do. But I believe that um, this is an industry that was built on uh, private sector capitalism. And I think the commitment to that showed up at the, re the recent Railroad Commission hearings, where even those who would have been clear beneficiaries, there were a number of those who said, no, we don't want that. Uh, it, it, that kind of a, of a bailout uh, really is, uh, is anathema to how we built the company or not, uh, the companies that are here represented. There were some others who said, we're not talking about long-term things, but we're talking about doing some things that on the margin will help. Well, that's gonna happen anyway. Basically, we were producing at the beginning of this year just under, we were producing at the beginning of the year, 12 and a half million barrels a day. By the end of January, we were close to 13 million barrels a day. By the end of this year, and maybe by as early as Labor Day, we'll be testing 11 million barrels a day without any government decree. So that, that speaks to the Texas Railroad Commission, that speaks to, that it just, most in the industry are gonna accept there's a new reality and we have to adjust to it. Um, now, the president has talked about thinking about it, and maybe there are some things that can be done, uh, and the Railroad Commission could, could do something on li limiting natural gas emissions or the burning of gas um, as a way to get rid of it uh, because it's surplus. That, that they could do, and that would reinforce somewhat what's going to happen anyway in terms of declining production. But the U.S. is on a path right now to decline from a remarkably fast growth from 10 and a half million barrels a day to almost 13 happened incredibly quickly. And I won't go into it now because it takes a lot of detail that you don't want to hear, you don't need to hear, but, but the fact is it happened quickly and it was a misread of the market to believe if you can go from 10 and a half to 13 that fast, 13 and 14 million barrels a day might be right around the corner. And the answer is, well, maybe it would have been except that um, a number of other com competitors in the world market decided they didn't want to see it happen. And, and it's certainly not going to happen in this cycle at this point. Yeah. Um, this is a, another really interesting question here. Uh, a person asking, is there any connection between 
Mohammed bin Salman rounding up and sort of addressing his political opponents at the, uh, uh, putting him up at the Ritz Carlton, so to say, and the fact that it took place right after the OPEC meeting. Um, and, you know, let me just pause there and hear your reaction if there's any there. Otherwise, there's another one that sort of goes in that same direction. Yeah, sure. Well, there was, there was that big uh, economic coming out party, if you will, uh, emceed by Maria Bartiromo and so on. And she and all the participants who came from Asia and the U.S. and all over the world and in Europe um, had barely got on the planes when they started the roundup. And I referred to it as a shakedown. And... Um, and uh, and it was, uh, it, but but uh, the crown prince had decided he needed he needed a uh, a cushion of of uh, funding uh, to to put into effect the opening up. And there were many good ideas about the opening up that were talked about there. I I, I don't mean to be critical of that, but to do right on the heels of it that um, that rounding up of uh, uh, various relatives. Uh, to create that that cushion of, of funding uh, was counterintuitive, and um, and then when they did the Saudi Aramco IPO, uh, yep. there was a similar one. So that's you know I'd say that not everybody felt that, that that this was their own decision, but if they he had made them an offer they couldn't refuse, and they didn't. <laughs> sure, sure. Um... Okay, I'll leave it at that. Um, there's questions here about oil tankers getting bombed. Uh, Turkey, obviously, there was some in the Arabian Gulf. Um, you know, some mysterious, less mysterious. You saw some. Uh, you know, Saudi Arabia's main oil facility attacked. Um, you know, you expected more of this. What do we make of this? How do you think about it? Um, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, really important. Uh, you know, that was. You know, it's not even a year ago that that happened. It was. You know, still three months ago before that event, uh, before the end, the anniversary of that event. Um, look, Iran is in in very desperate straits, uh, but that doesn't mean it is uh, impotent. It has military capabilities. Uh, it has drones. It has a lot of things, and and so they have they've uh, they've misdirected uh, tankers. They've uh, used drones. They took out one of our drones. So there are things going on that are going to be part of the ongoing uh, fabric here. Uh, there's been some noises coming out that Saudi Arabia is trying to dial back the uh, war in Yemen. And they are probably, from, from things we've seen, they are trying to probably st uh, step down the intensity of that conflict. But, um, uh, but they're finding negotiating with the Houthis, the, the enemy that is aligned with Iran, is much more difficult than they may have anticipated. This is not a cowed enemy. This is a, an enemy that, if anything, thinks they've got the upper hand now. So there are going to be, we're still going to have various challenges in that part of the world. The presence of the U.S. naval fleet uh, in there uh, is a stabilizing force. Um, and I think I think the ability to deal with it and keep it at a tactical, not a strategic level, is still there. Um, but uh, but some some way somehow uh, there needs to be uh, a toning down of the rhetoric and of the antipathy between Saudi and Iran. And if anything, it may be it may be underway while we're even talking because. Um, 
when I first analyzed what happened with those missiles coming in, I thought that could not have been done by Iran without at least a polite heads up to their to their de facto ally Russia, and uh, and yet Russia, you know, is certainly engaged in diplomacy with the Saudis. So uh, it, it's still an area in the world where uh, predicting the next problem. Uh, is very difficult and the timing especially, but the one thing you can predict is that there will be future problems that that challenge the flow of oil and the balance of oil power. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a complicated part of the world for sure. Um, all right, so and it's a big reason, and it, it's a really big reason why the U.S. achieving de facto independence uh, puts us in a better position to be uh, a leader. Uh, within the consuming world and the Western world uh, in a way that we were much more hamstrung in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. Yeah. yeah. So Tom, I want to ask you, uh, I think we'll have this be the last question. And then I want to wrap up with some of these lessons you articulate in your book that are so uh, perfect for this time. But um, so the question here is, Tom, can you address how the current administration's retreat from the global stage, i.e. the America First policies, has impacted Russia and China coming to the forefront? Uh, and then obviously you can sort of drizzle in there what it might mean for the energy sectors. Yeah. Um, well, I do think that, that this is a complicated one as well. And, uh, and there is, you know, the, the policies of the administration uh, don't come for free. There are, there are second order consequences to everything that's been done. And the, a lot of the debate that we had over the, the first three years of uh, the president's administration, as he was administering uh, the tariff uh, uh, incentives, if you will, the tariff detriments to uh, certain behavior. Um, uh, none of that came for free. Uh, there, that was part of how Russia was able to begin to maneuver in a different way in the Middle East than would have been the case before. That was a, that's a, that speaks to why as U.S., I'm sorry, as Saudi, uh, as, as, let me back up, as various sources of production uh, were going into China and they started to decline, um, we, we began to see uh, Russia able to step up its exports. And, um, and, and so there's a redefining of trade patterns that came out of that. And, and, and that was all, and tariffs were a big part of that America first uh, theme that then got applied in very practical ways. So I do think, uh, I do think that we're, we've, we have signs that we're graduating away from using tariffs. Um, there, I think even the proponents of it including the president, kind of understood uh, they would have a certain shelf life of utility, but they wouldn't necessarily be uh, as effective in the fourth, fifth, or sixth years of, of, uh, of this administration, if he gets that, um, uh, as they were in the first three years. And, and certainly uh, it culminated in, in the trade agreement. And now the interesting question is how much of that trade agreement will survive 
the second order effects of the coronavirus. That's a whole nother, you want to spend another hour. Another another couple hours for that one. (laughs) Sure. So Tom, I think I'm going to wrap up here with these, uh, you know, in your book, you've got that fabulous section where you articulate the the big and key lessons you learned over uh, 40 plus years of watching this sector uh, and sort of having the cycles in it. And in particular, um, there's a couple that I want to raise because I think it'll leave us all with some thoughts that could be very valuable. Um, You say it is often darkest before the dawn. So that's one of them. Let me uh, combine that with a couple others. Um, You say, uh, pay attention, my paraphrasing now, uh, shortening it, but pay attention to the improbable risks or the black swans or sort of the ones that you think are low probability, but really high impact. and then, uh, you know, one of the other ones you talk about is shifting global macro dynamics can really undermine the best executed local plans, if you will, right? You could have the best plans to execute and you get sideswiped. I'm sorry, there's nothing you can do. You got to adapt. You got to pivot. So taking those three things, those three lessons, what are you worrying about now that might be low or high probability uh, with high impact or, you know, high probability, low impact? and I mean, how does that come into play with prices and energy, but also just generically? You know, what are you worried about? Good. Um, well, let's start with that darkest before the dawn, because okay. uh, I've, when I was talking about this, when, when, when the Black Swan book came out, I really gravitated to it because I'd already had at that point about 25 years of, of living through Black Swans, 1973 the uh, Yom Kippur War, 1979, the Iranian Revolution, 1986, uh, OPEC overreached on price and, and paid a very big price in lost market share and really, you know, had had their 40, 40 plus dollar oil go to $6 a barrel for a little while. Uh, so, uh, darkest before the dawn, we came out of each of those by being adaptive and be, and, and so on. So, I think that still applies, but this time around, I think the the window of opportunity will probably compress more than it has historically. And the reason I say that is that what we're looking at in some of the, right now, we're, you know, we could say uh, the last one that we had was 2008 or nine, the Great Recession. Well, now we're in the, pando- the, the, the coronavirus pan- pandemic that has given us, uh, you know, some of the statistics begin to rival the, st- the statistics of the Great Depression. It's not to say it's gonna play out the same way as the Great Depression, but I think we're gonna get a recovery. Um, and we've got some risk that the coronavirus isn't totally defeated. We've got a risk of whether or not we're gonna get a vaccine that, um, that really immunizes us or simply helps us treat it each time it happens. So there's, there's big things like that that, that could change it. And, and that, that feeds to that, that last one. So I'll come back to that in a minute. But on black swan events, one of the ones, you know, this is to me, you know, the coronavirus is a black swan event. How it, how it was generated, I won't try to address that because we, we don't have enough to know. Um, how it was handled once that was discovered, that's a little different question. Um, and certainly that makes it a second order consequence that uh, trading relationships globally, I think, don't go back to way the, where they were two years ago. Um, it's not to say there will be none, but they're going to be redefined by the behavior that is now being detected. And um, and it's very hard to get away with things as, uh, you know, 
as the blue dot analysis out of Wuhan shows us less than a week ago. Um, you know, the knowledge of, of that and then the failure to share that knowledge is a big issue. And it, it, whenever we're out of what we're dealing with right now, that will not be forgotten. That'll, that'll redefine future trading in a way that uh, will have a real bearing on global growth. That brings us to what, you know, there was a concept around for the last couple of years uh, uh, that, that replaced the old peak oil concept. Peak oil was, was all the rage in the late 90s to the mid, mid following decade. And then, and then we had the revolution and, and peak oil went away as a concept. Recently, people have talked about peak demand as the big challenge. And, you know, and, and enough renewables are going to come in and so on. And, and, and we're going to leave a lot of oil in the ground that we never find worth taking out of the ground. Well, um, I'm, not a, I'm not suggesting I fully buy into that now, but I will say that uh, if people have a different view about how they fly, where they fly, when they fly, um, and uh, and we do get some of the electric generation build out for electric cars and so on, uh, it is gonna change the pattern and the, maybe the pattern of global growth will be diminished somewhat and the pattern of new innovation uh, involving these is gonna give us a different take on the rate of demand growth, at least for hydrocarbons. Um, I think we'll be better able to judge that in 2025 than in 2021. So, you know, I think we've got a recovery that's going to have legs because, you know, brute force has created the down cycle this time. And a brute force negative cycle, you usually can get through it and have a good recovery. And I think we're going to have one. I think we'll have one probably uh, maybe as early as starting third or fourth quarter of this year with some momentum better next year, and maybe it carries into 2022 or 23. But I also think there's a longer term set of behavioral change coming up that we're going to have to worry about. Sure, sure. Tom, we have another 200 questions here, and I realize we don't have the time to do it. I, I wish I had been more succinct in answering the first one. <laughs> no, no, that's fabulous. I think this has been really insightful for me. I hope uh, those listening have found some value here as well. Tom, I can't thank you enough. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time. I'm sure that, uh, you know, given the dynamics we have at work here, there'll be an opportunity if, uh, if stars align again to get you back on and uh, spend a little more time with us and maybe have uh, a different set of questions. But, uh, but thank you. Uh, thank you. I, you know, continually assessing the macro drivers is going to be the heart of being successful in investing in this sector. And boy, uh, you know, the old, uh, my favorite saying is uh, th that the, old, the, the Chinese curse is alive and well. The Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. And my recent corollary to that is the Chinese curse is alive and well, and it's not just the coronavirus. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, we're going to wrap this up. Tom, thank you again for your time. Uh, and for everyone uh, listening, I will send out an email with a link to the replay here of today's conversation, as well as the invitation uh, to next week's conversation that I'll be having with Kishore Mabubani, again, uh, predominantly about U.S.-China relations, uh, but more uh, specifically about his book called Has China Won? 
so please do join us uh, for that as well next week. And again, thank you, Tom. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks to everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. For more information, please do visit Dr. Manchramani's website at www.manshramani.com or follow him on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram. And of course, if you haven't done so already, we encourage you to purchase his book, Think for Yourself, which is available for pre-order on Amazon.